TED Audio Collective. And I encourage people to embrace the zigzag. That's where the adventure is. If I hadn't zigged and sagged, you would not invite me here. (laughs) Believe me. This is Valerie Jarrett. Does that name sound familiar? Yeah. She's that woman who advised the Obamas in the White House. She kept it pretty tight-lipped back then. But now, she has a lot of candid stories to tell about herself, her fascinating family, and about how we can all learn from her mistakes. I wasn't a very interesting person when I was <laughs> in that big law firm. I wasn't even good at my job. and I You w- weren't even good at your job? No, because I would sit there looking out the window, not caring one bit about what I was doing. And I'm not saying you have to feel passionate every single moment of a day at work. That's not realistic. But you do need to think it's purposeful and valuable. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is ZigZag, the podcast about the changing culture of business and work and how people are experimenting with new ways to run their companies, to run their careers and their lives. Today on the show, Valerie Jarrett. Unusual details about her own incredible career, including how President Obama dealt with her hot flashes during menopause, which she was going through in the White House, and more about her extraordinary family, one that relished the zigzag, or as she calls it, the swerves. They defied racism in incredible ways to become some of the most influential African Americans that you have probably never heard of. We saved this episode for the holiday season because I kind of have a fantasy about it, that some of you are listening to it as you're driving to your grandma's house or your niece's place, And later, when you're all sitting around the dinner table, various generations gathered together, you'll start a conversation about what being a working person was like for the older folks sitting there, or what it will be like in decades to come for the younger people. And then you consider where you fit in right now. We'll be right back with my conversation with Valerie Jarrett. It is extremely inspiring. We're back. It's Zigzag. I'm Anoush. Ah, yes. My name is Valerie Jarrett, and I am the new author of a book called Finding My Voice. I'm going to launch straight into it, Let's if go. that's okay. Absolutely. So I want to start out by apologizing for not realizing what a fascinating childhood you had. I mean, I watched you in the White House for eight years, but I had no idea how interesting your family was and sort of the very prominent role that they played in creating the city of Chicago. So I wanted to start out with you talking about who your parents were and and what they did. And I read this one line to my 12-year-old son. I was like, she's talking about her Uncle Earl and how he was really good at arguing. And then you go on to say he was really good at arguing because he'd won a case against racially restrictive covenants before the U.S. Supreme Court. Those kinds of, like, name-dropping family members. Well, thank you for saying that. And I and I suppose 
when I was in the White House, it wasn't my job to talk about myself. It was my job to talk about policies and issues that were the priorities of President Obama. And so when we left the White House, it was really my first opportunity to think about what I wanted to say about my life in the hopes that it would be helpful to others. And so I am the product of Barbara and Jimmy Bowman. Barbara grew up in Chicago. My dad grew up in Washington, D.C. They met when my mother was in college and my father was in uh, medical school, finishing up medical school. And then he moved to Chicago for his residency and not long thereafter, as soon as my mom graduated from college, they got married. And if you think about that era, it was a time of Jim Crow, both living under the vestiges of discrimination and racism left over from slavery and Fortunately, they both were born into families that valued education and recognized that the way towards upward mobility was hard work, great education, excellence, and because they had role models that had gone to college and on to um, graduate school in many cases, I think that helped them be what they could see. And for so many people, they don't have the role models that both of my parents had. My father's father was a dentist. My mother's father was a businessman. And his father had gone to MIT, the first African-American to graduate from MIT. You have a yes. lot of firsts in your there family. There are. He is unusual because he started MIT in 1888, and his father was born a slave. Wow. So from a father born a slave, freed after the Civil War, worked as a carpenter, saved enough money, and had the foresight to appreciate that he wanted his son to have a better life. And so off to MIT he went, and then... My great-grandfather ended up designing much of the Tuskegee University campus, many of the buildings that still stand today. There was another story that you told in the book that really sort of blew my mind, which was that your grandma, most people thought that she was white. Yes. And during Jim Crow days, she took you for a lunch at a department store where blacks were not welcome. Right. And I just... As someone who people often think that I'm a person of color, but I have not thought of myself as that until recently, which is a whole nother conversation, how how do you manage this idea of outside perception? Obviously, you're famous now, yeah. but prior to that, did you feel that there was a point where you had to – you had a choice about how to present yourself to the world? Sure. And I think what – I've reflected back on those incredible lunches with my grandmother now that I'm grown and certainly well into my um, teenage years, I started to think about, you know, why did she take me to a restaurant where other African-Americans were not welcome, knowing that in a sense we were passing and the only people who knew we were black were the people who were serving in the restaurant who were also black. And they knew? They knew, yeah. Black people tend to recognize other black people, no matter what you look like. Um uh, <laughs> Because we're used to there being a wide range in our community in terms of how you look. And I think at the time, she just wanted to show me a great time. And she knew that we you could do something. You don't think she was sticking it to people a little bit? She might have been. And I wish that I had talked to her about it before she died. Like, what were you actually thinking? But my mother's reflection on it is is that— and I tell the story about my mother traveling to the South where, as people now know, there were many parts of the South where African-Americans could not stay in, ho in hotels. They were white-only hotels. And on the, one of those trips, my um, 
grandmother walked in and checked into the hotel while my mother and her sister and her father stayed in the car because they were not as fair as my grandmother. And I asked my mother, well, how did other black people feel about that? How do you think people felt about the fact that we were going to this restaurant that other people couldn't go to? And she said, I think they wish that they could have done it too. But I think that colorism is responsible for a lot of the tension within the black community that people who were lighter skin had advantages that people who were darker skin did not. And I think part of the healing is recognizing that we're all black and we may look differently, but we are all black. And that there are many in my parents' and grandparents' generation, for example, you talk about choice, who chose to pass as white, not mm. just you know, in a restaurant, but as they lived. Mm. And my parents told me about those stories and just how that's seen as a betrayal in some Well, ways? not so much a betrayal, but just what a sad state of affairs that people had to, in an attempt to have a better life, put aside who they are. Hmm. And they just was trying to make a point. And to get people to start to think about how those distinctions are hurtful within the black community and certainly hurtful when directed towards the black community. In other ways, your childhood was certainly one of privilege. You went to boarding school. You had two parents who were very happily married. You got all the best education there was to possibly have to the point where you really were a super type A person who had a specific list of early on as a teenager, I believe, or maybe in college. In college, yeah. Can you just share what the list was? Yes. Well, so— Well, first of all, yes, my parents loved me unconditionally and each other, sacrificed mightily for me to have the absolute best education money could buy, prioritized education and excellence from a very early age. And not just excellence, but effort. Mm. If I got an A plus and they thought that I hadn't worked hard to get it, that wasn't nearly as valuable as a A minus where I had really gone all out. And so, and the only way that you can try to get a level playing field is to work twice as hard. And so I did make a plan, a 10-year plan, to go right to law school, discover my passion in the law, return to Chicago. I was getting a little homesick. I've been away for a while. Fall madly in love. And I ended up getting married to the boy next door, literally almost, and that my mom and his mom grew up in the same apartment building. Our dads were friends. He was a doctor. My father was a doctor. I'd had a crush on him since I was eight, and he was 12. So what could go wrong with that, right? Oh, so much could go wrong with that, and did. And I've begin my book 10 years later, having had a daughter just shy of my 30th birthday, something that was also in that plan, miserable. And I realized, oh my goodness, I haven't been listening to the most important voice inside of me, that quiet one. I've been kind of doing what I thought everybody else wanted me to do. Mm -hmm. And everybody, in fact, was proud of me. My parents were, I was the first lawyer in our family. And my friends thought I had this terrific job. And I was miserable, and I had to really do some soul-searching. And it's the first time that I recognized the value of a lesson my father taught me early in life, which is the swerve. Mm. And when my father back, when he and my mom had only been married a couple years, was looking for a job at a major teaching hospital, and he couldn't find one in the United States equivalent to his white counterparts. And so he and my mother started looking for opportunities outside of the United States and landed a job offer to start a new hospital in Shiraz, Iran, and to chair the Department of Pathology. And so off he went. And I was the second baby born in that hospital. And we lived there five years. And then we moved to London 
for a year because of the research he did in Iran that caught the attention of people at the Galton Labs at University College of London. And then he's speaking at an international conference and the dean of the University of Chicago Medical Center hears about his research and offers him a job. And so he said to me throughout my childhood for as long as I can remember that sometimes the shortest distance to where you want to go means you better be prepared to take the long way around or the scenic route. And so I'd seen my parents do this swerve, you know, that landed him in Iran and then London and then then where he really wanted to be back home in my mother's hometown of Chicago. And so I'm sure that gave me some courage to decide I wanted to do something very different. Jarrett ended up divorcing that boy next door, raising their daughter on her own, and leaving her high-paying job in corporate law to go and work for the mayor of Chicago. It was a seriously risky move. But if it hadn't been for Mayor Held Washington having just been reelected, and I had been so caught up in his progressive agenda, and he made me curious about government in a way that I had just never been before— I'm not sure I would have taken that leap of faith to join city government and listen to a quiet voice that said I wanted to be part of something bigger than just myself. And it was in that public service that I learned to advocate first for other people and found my voice to help those who hadn't had a seat at the table. And I knew how, to use your word, privileged I had been, but I knew also about so many people who, through no fault of their own, were still struggling Mm. in this city that I called home. And then I also learned how to find my own voice and advocate for myself, thanks to a really good mentor who pushed me hard. And which mentor was that? Her name was Lucille Dobbins. And she took me under her wing. She'd been in the mayor's office for a while, oversaw finance and development, and I was doing that kind of legal work in the law department. And she just supported me and took me to meetings and brought me into policy Mm. conversations. And then maybe just as importantly, encouraged me to go ask for a promotion, something I would not have ever done without her encouragement. You call her a mentor and an advocate in the book. Yes. And the advocate piece comes because the advocate is a person who goes to bat for you when you're not in the room. And as I discovered years later, she'd actually gone and talked to the head of the department before I went in and asked for a promotion. And she never said that to me at the time. She just kept pushing me to go. And the easy thing would have been to her, for her to go say, Valerie deserves a promotion because she'll give it to her and do so, as opposed to Valerie deserves a promotion, wait until she comes and asks for it. And the courage I had to overcome and the fear of rejection and embarrassment she thought was something important for me to go through. And so she just kept saying, have you gone? Have you gone? And I was like, no, I haven't. And she knew that if I asked for it, I would get it. Mm -hmm. But she wanted me to learn how to ask for it. And Mm. so that was a great gift she gave me. Okay, in a minute, more of my conversation with Valerie Jarrett, how she changed the way maternity and paternity leave work at the White House. And now that she doesn't work there anymore, what she really thinks about politics. We'll be right back after a quick break. We're back. It's Zigzag. I'm Anoush. And here's the rest of my conversation with Valerie Jarrett. Truly one of my favorite interviews ever. I have to admit that I was first intrigued to read your book when I heard you on stage somewhere and you used the term zigzag. The show is called Zigzag. Yes, it's I know. <laughs> Two <My> women <laughs> zigging and zagging. Yes. Um, but I want to just read you 
a quote from your book. I wish I had embraced the thrill of the zigzag rather than crave straight lines. I wish I had understood that hard work doesn't always prevent failures. Obviously, great wisdom. But with 2020 hindsight, I think that moment of the turn is when you your feet are not firmly on the ground. And I see around me people who barrel ahead, maybe too fast. I see other people who get stuck in the turn because they're they can't quite pull themselves, just to take this metaphor really far. But do you think that the zigzag is something that more and more people in our economy, in this country right now, have to embrace simply because of the way that work is being structured, businesses are being structured, careers are being structured? Surely. In my parents' generation, it was common for people to work for one company or or entity their entire career hopefully move up in it, but stay put. And for the generation coming out of school today, the expectation is that they'll have multiple jobs. And that's a great freedom of opportunity to not feel stuck. And I think my generation in between, I felt stuck. I felt like, okay, I've made this decision to go to into a big law firm. That's what I should do. And I should just kind of crave that straight line, as I say. And I think the critical impetus for me to make that swerve, two things. One, being really miserable. And I'm not a miserable person by nature, and so I could only stand that for so long. So I'm actually glad I was as miserable as I was, because maybe I would have stayed if I'd just been home. And then having my daughter. Mm. And I will say, now that I'm a grandmother, I have this conversation. Congratulations, Thank by you. the way. Very recently, so, right? Very recently, just a couple of months. But I've been spending a lot of time with my daughter and talking about motherhood. And I said to her, as she's heard before recently, you just want your children to be proud of you. You want them to look up to you. You want them to think that you're setting a good example. And in fact, she gave me the best gift um, as I began my book tour. She came with me and was interviewed. And the moderator, a good friend of mine, Tina Chen, said to her, what did you learn about your mother in the book that you didn't know? Mm. And my daughter said, I had no idea how guilty she felt as a young working mom. And I thought she was the best mom in the world. And I want all the working moms out there to realize that you are role models for your daughters. And you may not spend all day long with them every day, but they are benefiting by seeing the example that you are leading and that she knew she was always my top priority, whether I was at home or not. What? Well, if I think of all of the guilt I used to feel as that young working mom, but the guilt was exacerbated when I was going to work doing something I didn't really care about. Right. And so at least when I joined city government, I took her with me everywhere. And so she went to public hearings when I was getting screamed at. Maybe that was a mistake. But she also traveled with Mayor Daly's wife when we went to Hong Kong and Japan. So she had kind of the best and the worst. But what I really wanted to do, which I encourage, if possible, and for a lot of working parents, this is not possible, but by taking her to work with me Mm -hmm. where I could, first of all, there was no longer a mystery of what I right. was when I wasn't with mm-hmm. her. She could visualize where I was, and my mom did that as well. And then she could see me in action. And the other thing I did is anytime she called, no matter where I was, the call had to go through. And the sharpest words I ever had with one of my assistants was when she didn't put Laura's call through. And I said, well, why didn't you? And she said, the door was closed. And I said, but you know the rule. And she mm. said, well, Laura said it wasn't important. Well, at the time, Laura was five. And I said to her, a five-year-old doesn't decide if it's important. I do. And I'm fortunate to have had 
jobs where after I left the law firm, my bosses understood that I was a single mom. And you know, Mayor Daly encouraged me to go to the Halloween parade in the middle of a meeting when he saw me looking at my watch and wondering what I was doing. And in return for that, I am completely loyal to him to this day, even though mm-hmm. I haven't worked for him in years. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that what I'm encouraged by that gets back to this concept of the zig and zag is, is that employers are beginning to recognize that the best way to compete in this global 21st century marketplace is to have hire and retain the most talented people and to give them opportunities to find their passion and create some flexibility for them to be whole people. And so I'm heartened that we're in the disruptive period where the zigzag is more recognized and rewarded and where people are allowed to be their whole selves and come to work with that and advocate for themselves. And where I am right now to kind of fast forward today is, is that there are still far too many working families who aren't in a position to advocate right. for themselves. And whether it's equal pay for women or workplace flexibility, which I certainly needed, or paid leave, we're the only developed country in the world that doesn't have a national paid leave policy. 43 million Americans don't have a single paid sick day. Affordable childcare, a culture that's free from sexual harassment in the workplace and in our society. All of these qualities and benefits are essential for working families. And there is mounting evidence that shows that employers that get that have a more efficient, more productive workforce, loyal workforce, less turnover, and in the private sector, more profitable. And so the argument I make for embracing the zigzag of life and allowing people to be their whole selves is that it's a business imperative today if you want to really retain everybody, the most talented. So where's the line, though, between it being a culture change, between people just accepting different behaviors in the office or even not in the office because so many people are working remotely? And where is it the responsibility of the government to actually create parameters, pass laws, uh, decide yes. how we live and work? Yes, that's a really good question. So I think that as a matter of public policy, the government should set the broad parameters and to say in our country, we need to have, for example, equal pay for women and teeth in the law to ensure that that happens. We need to have a national paid leave policy for the United States to be competitively with the rest of the world. I think that's a public policy imperative that the members of Congress should embrace. And what I discovered, one of the many things I learned in my eight years in the White House, is that it's very difficult for Congress to do anything, even when it's in the best interest of the country. And so rather than just saying the perfect would be a national policy, say, well, what would be good? And so we started going around and talking to cities and states, and many of them have passed laws requiring paid leave, for example, or equal pay. And we also started talking to employers and asking them to take a pledge to mm-hmm. agree that mm-hmm. they were going to look and see if there's a pay gap, close the gap. Several employers, not only did, were they going to offer, say, 15 days paid leave, although it should be a lot more, they were going to require their suppliers to do that as well. Mm-hmm. Microsoft and Facebook, two companies right off the bat. So recognizing that they have influence in the marketplace to establish best practices and And so I think it's a combination. Ideally, it's the federal government. But the other really important point here is is that even if you have a law and even if your company has a policy, let's say on paid leave, if nobody takes it, then what What good is it? And that gets to the heart of culture. And so, for example, in President Obama's White House, we had three months paid leave for men and women equal 
because I believe, and so did President Obama, that we have to have a policy that's equal for men and women. If we expect for women to compete on an even playing field and we expect for men to be productive, contributory parents, well, then why would we have a difference in their leave? But more importantly than the policy, we encourage people to take it, starting at the top. So the senior men, for example, in the White House who had children all took the leave. They did. They yes, they it. did. And and if they came back early, we frowned at them. Really? Absolutely. And the women all took it. And I had a deputy who once said to me, I'm giving you six months notice that I'm going to quit. And I'm like, why are you going to quit? And she said, I want to have a baby. I said, and you will have three months paid leave. She didn't even know we had a three months leave policy. And I said, not only that, but we're going to work this out so you can come back slowly. Because I know for me, it was such a shock to go from leave to back to work. And so I said, come back, you know, work three hours, work four hours, build you, it up. You were okay with that? Absolutely, because she was talented and I would have done anything to keep her. And it was important for me to send the signal as the senior most woman in the White House about what our expectations were in order to give this permission structure throughout the organization to avail themselves of these important initiatives. And so we felt like we had to walk the walk. If I'm out there telling private sure. employers they should do it, well, then we better do it in-house. But then how did you manage I mean, the plate that you were handed was overloaded with duties when you were at the White House. You were in charge of so many things. Yes, I agree. Walk the walk. Make sure that you're hiring the most talented people and they don't want to leave because you are making it possible for them to have families as well. But then what do you do? Do you backfill? Yeah, yes. Do you, yes, do you end up taking on a lot more? Uh, well, all of the above. And, and I think the backfill is an important point because sometimes in – organizations. I've heard people are resentful when somebody takes leave and, well, now I have to work harder. But what we did at the White House is that we have a small senior staff meeting and then a bigger senior staff meeting and then a bigger one. And so if you moved into a senior position on an interim basis, you got to come to the smaller meeting. And so in a sense, it gave people who were filling in exposure to more senior people. You sit at the table where your boss used to sit. Mm -hmm. And beginning with the chief of staff, he welcomed the deputy who took the place of the person who was on leave to come to that table and participate. Well, that's what everybody wants to do in the White House is to be at the smallest table possible, right? Particularly right. in the Oval Office. And the room so if where you it were, happens. If the be in the room where it happens. And so if you get to be in the room where it happens and then somebody behind you gets to move up, then it makes it a lot more palatable for people to feel like they should fill in. And then the other thing is it's just the right thing to do. And if you care about the people with whom you work, I wouldn't have dreamed of denying that opportunity to my deputy. I just, I love her as a human being. I care about her. And I know how much, how important that leave was to me in my life. And so I think if you invest in the people with whom you work, what you get back is just what I gave Mayor Daly when he let me go to that Halloween parade. You get this enormous degree of loyalty. And I think the people who all took advantage of this leave, and one of them, the chairman of the Council on Economic Advisors, a man, had two children. Mm. And so he did it twice. And I think they would all tell you that it made a huge difference in the lives of their family members. There's a very interesting portion of your book where you talk about women's problems in the White House. Yes. That comes, there's a whole list of things. I'm not sure where to go. Menopause comes with uh, the first chief of staff, Rahm Emanuel, screaming at people, not just women, men too, but a different communication style, shall we say. And the fact that you were, you know, sometimes it bothers me that often older women in an office are given the sort of mother hen role. But you kind of relished that. You were the mentor to a lot of people. People felt they could come to you with their personal problems and you were there to advise. 
But well, you know, I enjoyed being the older woman, and I think part of it was because I know what a difference Lucille Dobbins, my mentor, made in my life, and dramatically changed the trajectory of my life. And I wanted to be able to do that for other people. And it's been a big part of what has motivated me when I was CEO of a company, as well as my time in the White House. And by being the most senior woman, the longest serving senior advisor in history, with a relationship with President Obama, I thought it was really important that I use what influence I had to try to be as supportive as I could and to help contribute to the culture that I knew President Obama wanted to foster. And he wasn't in every room. And so I was in a lot more rooms than he was in. And it was important to me that the women thrive there. And I had been co-chair of his transition team, had recruited several of them. I wanted them to really do well. And I think I mentioned the menopause in the book because I tried to do it in a lighthearted way. But totally. I also had lighthearted in that you know, President Obama would just – he loved a hot car because I think he's from Hawaii. <laughs> and I normally like to be warm too except when you're having a hot flash. And he would sense my – heat next to him in the car. <laughs> you were emanating. And I must have been just, yeah, exuding it. And without even looking at me, he would turn up the air conditioning and just hand me a tissue. But I wanted to talk about it in the book because I think that we, as a society, stigmatize and are uncomfortable with what is a natural part of life. I mean, right. I talked about having a cesarean section. And I, th I was with a group of women yesterday and they were saying, yeah, you know, we just don't like to talk about those issues and it makes men uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think they have to get a little more comfortable being uncomfortable. I knew we had really achieved the culture I wanted in the White House when we had a senior staff meeting near the end. And three of the women who'd been on maternity leave were now back at work, sitting at the table, the big table. And before the meeting started, rather than doing what normally happens before a meeting starts, if men dominate the meeting, what do we talk about? Sports, right? You know what we're talking about? Breast pumps. Nice. Comparing what's the best breast pump. And I did take a moment and I said, I just love this. And the guys were a little uncomfortable, but not as uncomfortable as they might have been in a culture that didn't support that. And I thought, this is a sign of progress where we can talk about breast pumps before a meeting begins. And you need a critical mass to do that, too. You know, the zigzag is a lot more comfortable if there are other people who are a part of that with you and who embrace your life and, and welcome the zigzag. One thing I've observed, and I, I hear this from a lot of people, is that since the Me Too movement, there has definitely been a bit of a, I wouldn't say a rift, but a little bit of a gully between, I think, people my age and older who were like, look, you deal with this stuff at work, you get on with it, and this is what a top-down organization looks like. And then we have this younger generation who expect more of a flat management style, want to be heard, which is great sometimes, but sometimes the work just has to get done. And also, on the one hand, won't stand for some of the behavior that I'm ashamed to say I put up with. But on the other hand, are, I think, a little too sensitive sometimes. Where do you see that sort of balance? Well, so first of all, I did grow up in that generation that just sucked it up and took a lot that I shouldn't have had to take. And I can even remember being at office parties and seeing other women preyed upon. And I am embarrassed that I did not go to their rescue. And I simply, I didn't feel empowered. And we were all just, 
You know, you wanted to be one of the guys. You wanted to be accepted. I can remember listening to horrific sexist jokes and not laughing, but just trying to, like, not look offended for fear that they would think I was too fragile and not want to have me around. And I think that was absolutely wrong. And part of how we shift the paradigm, shift the culture, is to help educate people about how their behavior affects us. So it's not just their intent, but it's how does it make us feel. And I think talking about it openly is good. Yeah, there's, and I think that there can be some lines. I mean, I was, good example, I was standing in a photo line the other day and a nice young man who looked to be about 19 came up to me and he said, I'd like to take a photo with you. And I said, of course. And he said, may I put my arm around you? And I said, sure. He said, my mother told me I have to ask. And I said, you're right. It's always the right thing to do. Now, you've watched everybody else in the photo line do it, but thank goodness your mother is in your ear. Because I think that for far too long, men didn't think that they needed permission. They could just behave the way they wanted to behave. And they knew the way the deck was stacked, we would just kind of let them do it. And now, again, there are a lot of women who are in positions where they can't use their voice. They can't speak up. They will be retaliated against. And then it's up to the rest of us to speak up for them. But I also think, like I've, I've been hearing to your point about, is the pendulum swinging too far? There was some chatter several months ago about guys saying, well, I guess I can't travel with a woman on a business trip. I said, yes, I guess you can. Just don't go in a room and rape her afterwards. How about that? Just observe. Treat her like you would treat a guy. How about that? Just treat her on a level playing field. And so I think we have to be careful not to let the fear of a backlash actually hold women back. And what that requires is to have honest conversations and a lot of training in the workforce. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really focusing here on the workplace. And I think everything from implicit bias training to sexual harassment training. I'm on the faculty of the University of Chicago Law School every single year. The faculty have to go through training. I mean, everyone rolls their eyes when they have to go do these things. They but you think do. it's still worth well, it? Well, you know what? I do. And I say that because I think that there are ways of doing it that actually are quite helpful. So we go through a video where you have to put yourself in a situation. And then, you know, what would you do in this situation? And they give you material to read. And I kind of got into it because – and I got one question wrong. And I'm like, this is my expertise. I can't be wrong about this. And then that kind of competitive spirit comes out. So I think it can be done in a way that's ridiculous and people do mock it. And I know on a lot of college campuses where sexual violence is an epidemic, one in five women are going to be sexually assaulted on college campuses. And it's ubiquitous. There are a lot of colleges that oh, no, no, we don't have that problem here. It's everywhere. And we know that number is underreported. And so we, when we were in the White House, encouraged colleges and universities through our It's On Us program to really think about the culture and how to change it. At the same time as the Department of Education said, if you receive federal funding, you have to take this seriously because we have a responsibility to create a safe environment for your students. And the best ways of tackling this issue came when students and faculty and survivors and fraternity heads and alumni associations and the local police were all talking together. Mm. And so I think that if we are all talking together and actually listening to one another, then solutions will unfold. And the oversensitivity might be a short-term reaction, but I think it's all a part of the education process. As you look forward to the 2020 election. Oh, boy. Look forward, yes. Uh, I do look forward. We have no choice. I mean, who do you think is the right person to take up the mantle? I think, for me, it's too soon to say. I think there are an embarrassment of riches in the Democratic field. I think any one of them 
would be an improvement over the current occupant of the White House. And what I enjoy about campaigns, particularly now that I'm not in the middle of one, is the process. It's kind of rough and tumble. It's painful. You have to be prepared, I think, to affirmatively explain why your vision for America is one that's going to resonate, where people think it's relevant to their lives, and why you think you can execute on that vision, as opposed to what you think of the other candidates. I'm not so interested in what they think of each other. I'm more interested in what are you going to do for me and my family. And for those who think, oh, well, this is so difficult. I don't really, you know, I don't want to do what is required. Well, then you're seeking the wrong job. You can't have the most important job in the world unless you're willing to really go out there and earn the trust and respect, I think, of the American people and recognize that a campaign is one thing. But once you are elected, you are the president of the United States of America, which means everybody. And I think what we're hungry for right now is somebody who does feel like they are representative of us all and that isn't polarizing us and and sending us off into our, you know, tribal quarters, but finding what we have in common with one another and who wants to build on a lot of the important work that I think happened under the Obama administration that was designed to bring people closer together. So I don't take this as a litmus test on President Obama. Is there a certain amount of backlash to his presidency for people in this country who were uncomfortable with him? Sure. And and he never thought his election once or twice was going to suddenly make the United States post-racial. You don't get over a legacy of a few hundred years, just with eight years. And in a sense, when you dovetail on top of that, this new era of social media, cameras, a lot is bubbling up that was repressed before. And And though, from the top, kind of a a coarseness of our social norms, what was acceptable to say out of the mouth of a president before historically, this current president is kind of breaking all those rules. And there are people in the country who find that very attractive. So I can't say that there, you know, he doesn't have a strong base of support. But will the majority of the country really go for that? I don't think so. And one of the disappointments I had in the last election, other than the outcome, last presidential election, was that 43% of eligible voters did not vote. Mm. And I think that's a problem for our democracy. And then taking off my partisan hat and just my, you know, values of a democracy hat, what can we do to get more people to vote is something that I've challenged myself with. And so Mrs. Obama last summer launched an organization called When We All Vote, and it is intentionally nonpartisan because we think our young people need to grow up thinking that they have a responsibility to engage, not shun institutions that they're not happy with. And there's a lot of reason not to be happy with our forms of government. I get that. But if you don't like them, make them better. Right. You know, get in there, find a candidate who you do like. And so I think a kernel of not just a kernel, but a chunk of reason why I'm optimistic, if that's the right word, is that the midterm elections, we saw so many more people run for office, many who'd never run before. More women were elected to Congress than ever before. And I think that the body that represents half of our population should be more representative of that population. And I think women, as a general rule, are more comfortable seeking consensus. And so having them at the table, I think, is important. If you think about they were considering repealing the Affordable Care Act and focusing in on preventive care for women, and it was 16 men on a committee. Well, I want a woman there talking about what the impact would be on my body if they do something like that, not a bunch of guys who have no idea what menopause feels like, for example, yes. <laughs> or childbirth or postpartum depression or many of what is covered in the Affordable Care Act. So, Do you think Mrs. Obama will run for office 
Ever? Um, not only do I not think she will, I know she won't. And I think one of the advantages to both President and Mrs. Obama is they're young and have, before he was in office and certainly will now, a life dedicated to service. When I first met her in 1991, she had gone through the same challenge I did with a big law firm and not feeling purposeful and has devoted her life since then to service and will continue to do so. And I think for Mrs. Obama and for me, it was never the allure of politics. It was service. And I think her husband was drawn to both. He enjoyed the challenge of the political dynamic and was willing to get in there with members of Congress and try to, you know, make sausage and push, like, take the Affordable Care Act, one of the best days in the White House. What a difference it made in the lives of so many Americans. But you had to have an appetite for the politics in order to do that. And I think her real passion is, is in service, not politics. Did any of that appetite rub off on you? Would you ever run for public office? Not now. There was once upon a time where I was interested. I thought about running for mayor of Chicago. And I think perhaps if Mayor Daley had not run for his last term, I would have. And then when President Obama won, I thought about throwing my hat in the ring for his position in the Senate. And he and his wife convinced me to join them in the White House. And I'm glad that I did. And so at this stage of my life, what I really enjoy most is helping other people who do have an appetite, give them the benefit of what I've learned over the three decades since I first entered the public sector and help the next generation. And I think part of what you have to know is when it's time to turn the baton over. And I think when I was in local government, I learned a really important lesson, and that is what it means to serve. And the reason why it's easier to learn that lesson in local government is that your constituents are proximate. You know, they come up to you in the grocery store, the dry cleaners. Uh, people would slip notes to my daughter when she was very young. Tell your mother this. I mean, you're right there. <laughs> oh yeah, that was a little, a little know, off-putting. But, but it's a 24-7 job. And it requires selflessness, I believe. And it's noble, but it's hard. And you have to be really dedicated to it because the public is putting their trust in you. And at this stage of my life, with a grandbaby and a passion for gender equity and civic engagement and voting, ending gun violence, criminal justice reform, those are the issues that I care passionately about. And I want to just work on them. And I think when you're in elected office, everything's on your plate. So for me at this stage, no. Said very definitively. (laughs) My last question for you and this is, I think, the thing I will most take from your book, was a leadership lesson that I I guess I hadn't thought of it this way, that you and President Obama, I can't remember who first brought the idea to you, but this idea that leadership is absorbing pain. Yeah. Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah. Because it really, I had to read that paragraph several times. Yes, I gave a lot of thought to that, so I'm glad it resonated with you. I grew up a very shy child and very sensitive. I had high expectations of people probably because I was surrounded by these incredible parents. And my mom used to always say, you expect too much from people, you're just going to get disappointed. And when I entered the public domain and moved from the law department to the mayor's office and then the Department of Planning and Development, I went into the path of lightning, as my grandmother used to say. And wasn't used to being attacked, let alone publicly attacked. I was, you know, I was never the person to put my hand up in class and have people laugh at. I was afraid of being laughed at or mocked or say something stupid, and so I hadn't had a lot of experience really being in the in the path of lightning. 
And I remember the first time my local newspaper did an article that was critical of me. I went into Mayor Daly and showed him the article. And he said, do you see what they say about me every single day in the newspaper? Why are you in here? And he said, if you don't like what they said, go to the editorial board and defend yourself. Well, first of all, I was shocked. I didn't know I could do that. And second of all, it was so empowering to say, oh, I don't have to just take that. I can Mm. go in. I can defend myself. I can use my voice to stand up for myself. And... What I learned over time is is that you have to be able to absorb pain without it uh, debilitating you and crushing your soul, but also without it making you numb because your job is to listen. I mean, that's kind of the mm. first tenet of service is if you're serving someone, well, then you have to be able to listen to them so that you hear them. And I think one of the ways that I've coped with it now, and I'm not sure I delved into this in the book as much as I would perhaps at this moment, but I think that Having gone to public meetings where people were screaming at me at the top of their lungs and worked hard to earn their trust and respect and seen over time that I did and became friends with them kind of gave me this resilience to say, okay, they may start out really angry with me or very critical of me, but if they get to know me and if we actually open up and talk to one another – you can make progress. And so that helped me too. And then the final point I would make, and this applies to whether you're in the public or private sector or if you are just trying to have a relationship with somebody, and that is you do have to be open and communicate with people. Mm-hmm. You have to make yourself vulnerable, which means you're going to get some pain. And the question is, and is pain coming your way? The question is, what do you do with it? Because it will come your way. Because it will come your way. Life, if you live long enough, will have some pain. And I think surrounding yourself with good people who wish you well and who love you and who are open and honest with you and will tell you when you're wrong, too, is what has given me the resilience. And I think there are this whole notion of balance and can you have it all? I think those are outdated notions because there is no balance in life. (laughs) And no, you can't have it all if what you mean is I want everything I want when I want it all at the same time. And, And usually for women doing it all ourselves. No, none of that works. And so I say the question is, did you have a whole life? Did you have people around you when you were working 20 hours a day where one hour with them would give you enough nutrition to go back and fight again? And building those relationships is the most important thing we can do. I think it's very hard to be successful in your, either your personal or your professional life unless you are honest and open and vulnerable and willing to listen to people with whom you disagree. And again, back to your far earlier point, part of what's wrong right now is that We are so entrenched in our own little echo chambers that we're not learning how to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm. And I think the theme, back to the point of the pain that I learned throughout my life, is that these zigzags and uh, criticism and hard work and sacrifice all make you much more comfortable being uncomfortable. And then life becomes an adventure. Here, here, Valerie Jarrett, thank you so You're much welcome. for taking the time. The I book enjoyed our chat. great. I really enjoyed it. Thank, thank you for you. being vulnerable. And um, I really appreciate it. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thanks right. for having me and thanks yes. for your title, Zigzag. Valerie Jarrett, that is one cool lady. Okay, another awesome lady is coming on Zigzag next week on our next episode. Maybe you've heard of her too. Shireen Marisol Maraji the co-host of the NPR show Code Switch. We're going to talk about identity and when people think you are something that maybe you don't think you are. 
it's going to be an interesting conversation. We're going to break it down half Persian woman to half Persian woman, because that's what we both are. My business partner, Jen, will be back on the next episode, too. For now, though, I'm wishing you lots of love and conversation and storytelling with friends and family this holiday season. And if any fascinating tidbits come up that you would like to share, please do record a voice memo, write a little note, email it to zigzag at stableg.com. Oh, and hopefully you've signed up for the newsletter that I send out every other Thursday. I do not clog your inbox. Uh, It's got must-reads and links to other stuff we're making here at Stable G. You can sign up at the Stable Genius website, which is at StableG, S-T-A-B-L-E-G, dot com. This episode was produced by me and Jen Poyant with help from Marcy Thompson. Matt Boynton is our audio engineer and sound designer. David Herman is our composer. Maria Wartell is our production coordinator. And many thanks to Anya Zhezik for her audio engineering, too. Zigzag comes from Stable Genius Productions. We are proud members of Radiotopia from PRX. I'm Manoush Samarodi, and thank you so much for listening. Could we do a selfie? Is that weird? Of course we could. No, that's not weird. May I put my arm around you? You put your arm around (laughs) me. Absolutely.